I want to read these few verses together from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 1 to 3, and then we'll go to Luke uh, chapter 16 this morning. Uh, so would you read this with me? It's going to be on the screen. It says this. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, let's try that again. For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. Lord, we just come before you this morning. We thank you for the Word of God that declares to us that Christ died for our sins and to save us from our sins. And Jesus, we love your word because your word is always leading us to come to understand that, that you died for us, that you've come to save us. And so Jesus, we thank you for the written word that leads us to the living word, the person. And this morning, Jesus, as we spend time in your word, we pray that your spirit would just draw us closer to you. Lord, we pray that you'd take your word and by your spirit, tailor it for every one of our hearts, Lord. There's things you don't want us to hear, Lord, we pray we wouldn't hear. There's things, Lord, that I'm not even saying, but you want hearts to hear, Lord, I pray that it would be communicated, Lord. We pray that, that the gift of teaching would function in our church, Lord, that the gift of prophecy would be in operation, and that your spirit would speak to us. And so, Lord, we ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. All right, take a seat. <laughs> We're in Luke 16, so you can go there in your Bibles, and... Um, we are in the back half of Luke chapter 16. Luke 16, we, we looked at this last week. It's primarily made up of two, two stories that Jesus told. And they were in the midst of a certain context of a situation. And this, that Jesus was already speaking to a crowd of peoples. He was speaking to a group of people called tax collectors and sinners and Pharisees and scribes in Luke chapter 15. And he told them a parable, the parable of uh, the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the two lost sons, which we often call the parable of the prodigal son. And Jesus told that story to the crowd, and then he turned from the crowd, and he began to, in Luke chapter 16, speak specifically to his disciples. It was within the earshot of the whole crowd, so everyone could hear him, but he was directing what he was saying to the disciples, and he told them a parable that we looked at last week, a story of a dishonest manager, a man who had his job on the line because he had not properly managed his master's possessions, and he knew he was going to lose his job, and so he made some shrewd moves to ensure that even when he got fired, his future would be secure. And so we saw a couple things that Jesus was teaching uh, his disciples, he was teaching them this, that people are more important than things. This dishonest manager managed his relationships with people. And we saw this, that the future is more important than the present. He, he looked after the present so he would be better off when the future came. And so the dishonest manager was used by Jesus uh, to teach the disciples that they needed to secure their future that they needed to handle wisely the things that were given to them. And, and Jesus said to the 12, look at verse 9 of Luke chapter 16. We'll just go over a couple things here as we go into the next story. 
Verse 9, it says this. Jesus said to the 12, and I tell you, make friends for for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, say when it fails. When it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. And so we saw this last week as we were looking at this parable that Jesus tells us that earthly wealth is going to fail you at some point or another. It's just like the reality. We're all headed in the same direction towards uh, the grave. And it's like, I mean, if your money doesn't let you down beforehand, you'll leave it all for someone else. And so Jesus went on and he spoke to his disciples about the nature of unrighteous wealth on the earth and what true riches actually are. He said, use your unrighteous wealth so that you will have an inheritance of true riches when you enter into eternity. He told the 12, you got to be faithful with the little so that you can be entrusted with true wealth. And then Jesus said something that as the crowd was listening, as the Pharisees were listening and speaking to him, uh, hearing him speak to the 12, It caused them, what he said next, to react with laughter. Now, it's not because Jesus was putting on a comedy routine or that because they thought he was funny. They were laughing in mockery at what he said next. In fact, they were sneering. The original language expresses this idea that they sneered in ridicule at what he said. Now, look at verse 13. This will set the stage for where he continues to share. He said this. No servant can serve two masters, for he will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Then verse 14 says, The Pharisees who were lovers of money heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. The Pharisees were lovers of money, and Jesus said this, you can't serve God and money, and the scoffing began. And we talked about this last week. It's like, if there's a Pharisee in your heart like there is in my heart, uh, your heart will just rail even against that statement of Jesus that you cannot serve God and money. It's like, no, 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 there's got to be a way here, Lord. You know, the two, we can blend these two things together. You know, we can, we can find some sort of mutual agreement. And, and it's true that when Jesus says this, it just like exposes the pharisaical heart that can be in every one of us. You cannot serve God and money. Jesus said, me and money are incompatible rivals. But they laughed at him. And so verse 15 tells us that he responded by saying this. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Then Jesus, that's pretty crazy, isn't it? It's like Jesus said the things that men exalt are not the same things that God exalts. And then Jesus did something to really expose this, to really expose the hearts of Pharisees who were lovers of money, and to put on display for them that you cannot serve God and money. You know, human beings, like you and I, we're like, we're like pros at justifying ourselves. I mean, whatever action you want to take, you can build an argument to justify why you were totally reasonable and right in doing what you did. But Jesus says this, God actually knows your heart. 
God knows your heart. And when Jesus says that, he says it's, it's not in a good sense. He knows the truth of what's in your heart. And we ended on this thought last week on, on a verse last week. And I actually was like, I have to tell you, I was telling somebody at prayer this week, I said, man, I have to tell you, I was kind of like, I have different emotional experiences after preaching the word of God in different weeks. Sometimes I'm like, wow, that was awesome. And other weeks I'm like, wow, I should quit and find another job. <laughs> and um, last week was one of those weeks. It was like, man, I was just as low as I could possibly go after teaching the word. Now, I'm not, I'm not telling you that for, for your sympathy. I'm telling you that because I felt the heaviness of what we were discussing I know it was that way. I know it was here in the room. And I have to tell you something. Intentionally, as I taught the word of God, I felt like in my preparation, the Lord is like, do not lift the weight. Don't lift the weight off the hearts of the people. Let me do it. And, and so I, 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 I shared what Jesus said and what we're about to read here, and I gave no explanation whatsoever. I just let the weight of it rest on every single one of us, and I went away feeling like, wow, get a new job. But Jesus was doing this as he was teaching. He was actually using the law to confront the hearts of the Pharisees so that they would have this happen. They would see themselves in the mirror. They would see their own hearts in the mirror so that they would see their own pride and they would see their own sin. And Jesus said this to them so that this would happen to men who laughed at him when he said, you cannot serve God and money. Let's read this again. Now, verse 17, we looked at this last week, but it's easier, Jesus said, for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. It's like, what, what, how did we just go from like talking about money to this like marriage, adultery, divorce conversation, Jesus? And you read this and it's like, uh, I talked with lots of people after Sunday's message last week and it was like, well, hey, Jesus, could you actually just like explain this a little bit further? Like, are you just going to leave all of that weight upon us? I, I mean, we automatically, we read this. I mean, you read this in your own time. I read this in my own time. And we automatically think to ourselves, hey, I'd like a little bit more explanation. I'd like a little more commentary on that. I'd like a little bit more teaching. You know, I would like, I would like an application for me in my various situation. My my situation's different from this person and that person. And, and we would like clarity on our experiences in life and in marriage and with divorce and adultery and all of these things. And we think, well, what about my particular situation? And we wonder about our future. But I have to tell you, I don't think that that's what this text is all about. Not this particular passage. No, what I think is going on here is Jesus is doing to this. Now listen to this. This is important. Jesus is exposing the adulterous hearts of those who are listening to his voice. He said you can't love God and money. And they laughed. But he wasn't joking. It wasn't a comedy sketch. So he hit them right between the eyes. Right between the eyes. 
with the law. And it's really challenging. I mean, you can feel it in the room right now. It's really challenging. It's heavy. You can feel the weight and the heaviness. You read those words and you have no choice. What happens is this. Here's what happens. You feel your life on the scales. You feel your life hanging in the balance of the law. And you know, my heart is found wanting. My life is found wanting. You know, I think this, you know, lots of times we come to the Bible or we come to church and, and what we want to be told is this. Jesus loves you. You know, here's sentimental Jesus like we've talked about through the Gospel of Luke. Come on, Dr. Luke. Dr. Luke, don't pull out the sword of God's word and deal with the heart and the flesh and the spirit. No, give us a sentimental Jesus. Don't, don't use the gospel to expose what's in my heart. Don't use the gospel to expose our pride. Don't, don't hold up the mirror of the law and show me that my life is being weighed against the law of God and my adulterous heart is found wanting. No. Luke, why don't you just tickle our ears? Why don't you whisper to us sweet nothings and tell me delusional imaginations about myself? No, that's not what the word of God does, right? The word of God exposes pride and sin and adulterous, money-loving hearts. You know, we think, well, take me to the cross and tell me how much God loves me. And I'll tell you this, God does love you. But you will never truly appreciate the love of Christ unless you understand what he saved you from. You have to feel the weight of the law. You have to sense your sin. You have to be aware of the adultery in your own heart and have it exposed. And Luke is taking us on a journey through the story of Jesus and he is leading us to the cross and he wants us to understand what happened at the cross. The early church confessed, 1 Corinthians 15. I mean, we did this on purpose this morning. I had you read it out loud with intention. Christ died for our sin in accordance to the scripture. Christ died for our sin. Christ died because of sin, because the wages of sin is death, and the beauty of the gospel and the love of God cannot fully be understood unless it is in this light. Christ died for our sin in accordance with the scripture. An awareness of sin and the insecurity that happens in our hearts when, it's, when our lives are shown the mirror of God's love uh, are, are necessary to prepare our hearts for the message of the gospel. I, I would just say this, the stories in Luke 16 are not easy. Some of the things we're about to hear this morning, the second story is not easy. Jesus says you, you can't love God and money. Those statements about marriage and divorce and adultery, they're not, they don't make you feel very comfortable. But there's tissue around the edge of the room. If you need it, just go ahead, grab some. So Jesus does this. He tells another story. And again, we don't know whether this parable is a true story or, or, or just a parable, fictional but I would say this, as we're about to read it, it's the only time that Jesus tells a story and he uses the name of the individual in the story. So maybe it's not a parable. Maybe this, what we're about to read, is a true story. And it begins the way the last story began. We talked about this last week. 
with a rich man. See, this whole chapter is about how to turn uh, the unrighteous wealth of this world into true riches. How to use the material possessions of this earth so that when you die, you enter into true riches. And if you're going to follow Jesus, it's good to count the cost and then prepare for the future. So let's check this out. Verse 19 says this, there was a rich man. So see, this begins exactly the same as the last story. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and he saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue. For I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things and Lazarus in like manner, bad things? But now he's comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you is a great chasm that has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Someone came to C.S. Lewis one time, and they told him about this gravestone. They said, On this gravestone is an inscription that reads this. Here lies an atheist, all dressed up with no place to go. And Lewis said this, I bet he wishes that were so. I bet he wishes that were so. You know, I was thinking about this, you know, over the last two years. I mean, we've talked way too much about the last two years and all this stuff. But I would, I would say what we have watched, one of the things that we have watched is that we have seen our world live out its fear of death right in front of us. The fear of death, it's like unbelievable. And the problem, I would say, is this, that the world thinks that death is actually the end. That's it, you know, one life to live. Except that we're working so hard to keep everybody safe, they can't even live. Because the thought is, well, if we die, that's the end. That's the end. So what Jesus says here as he tells this story, I would say is really valuable because it gives us uh, some understanding about life and about death and about what happens after death. You might think to yourself, well, I mean, can we really know? I mean, who knows what happens when we die? Well, I'll tell you who knows. Jesus knows. Amen? Jesus knows. If there was ever a person who could speak with some authority and knowledge about what happens after death, that would be Jesus. 
Jesus is the one who can address this issue and give us insight into this issue. If I'm gonna, I would just say this. I'm going to trust anyone's word about what happens regarding life after death. It's Jesus. So what do we observe from this story? Well, the first thing I would observe is this, is that you are going to survive death. Death is not the end for you. Death is not extinction. Every single person in this room, believe it or not, is going to survive death. Yes, you will be separated from your physical body, but it's amazing. We read this story. These individuals, they have thoughts. They have memories. They have feelings. They can see. They can communicate. They remained beyond death. They lived beyond death. And you're going to live beyond the grave. Jesus, I mean, think about Jesus. Jesus existed in eternity. He was born into this world. He died. He survived death. And he came back from the grave in a resurrected body. If there is someone who has the authority to speak on what happens after death, it's Jesus. And he taught this, you're going to survive death. He also taught this, that for, li- for some people, life after death is going to be a really big improvement. That's what I'm banking on. <laughs> for, others, for others, he said this, their experience is not going to be good, actually. It won't be good, to put it lightly. I mean, I would actually say this. There's no sense in the Bible that life after death is more of the same old. You know, it's like, oh, it's just like life on earth and it, and it continues. Life after death is either a major upgrade, like major upgrade, or a downgrade. The third thing we observe from this story is this, that the The deciding factor to what your experience is with regards to life after death is determined by how you live in this life, by how you're living right now. So you have to live for the future. The decisions that we make now have impact on our lives beyond, we find out, this physical world. And so that that means my my decision-making, how I live before God and before men, needs to take this into consideration, the future, life after this world, to consider eternity. We have to be so far-sighted that we live with prudence as followers of Jesus in this world. And the exciting thing is, is that we have like a measure of like influence and control over this. We have some influence and control over our destiny, so to speak, is we trust in Jesus. So let's consider this story, which I would say this. Look at, I lean to the fact that this is not a parable. I mean, if I was just in my own heart, I'd say, I think this is actually a true story, even though we aren't told it. So there's two men. They have polar opposite experiences of life in this world. We, we got like extreme wealth and abject poverty, which is kind of strange for us. Like as Canadians, we're like, we dwell in the middle class, right? I mean, we have, you know, this concept of extreme wealth and abject poverty is really foreign in our culture. Like unless you've traveled a little bit in this world, you don't know it in Canada. 
You just don't, right? Could we agree on that? You know, I oh, whenever I think about this, I think about my experience of going on a, a, to a pastor's conference in India in 2016. And when we were close to the airport and leaving, after we had landed in Delhi and we were leaving Delhi, I was totally shocked because the roads were like better than Canadian roads. I'm like, wow, what, I, I, what, what did I think I was going to? I don't know. It's like, this city has amazing infrastructure. Uh, there was a level of wealth that shocked me, but there was also like extreme poverty right in the midst of it. Right close to the airport, we, we stopped at a traffic light and there at the traffic light, in the middle median, like happens here in Canada, was a beggar sitting on the ground, except their experience of poverty was like I hadn't seen before. They were filthy. They were skin and bones. Their hair was matted and twisted up like dreadlocks. They were wearing rags. I mean, this person was destitute, and what shocked me was that immediately beside them, the vehicle right beside them was a Lamborghini. And I didn't go to India expecting to see that. The, the, the contrast of abject poverty and extreme wealth was hitting me right in the face, and I have to tell you, I, I mean, those of you who have heard me talk about this before, my experience in India for the first three days until I met some local believers was like, I can't get out of here fast enough. I found it so depressing. And in Jesus' story, we have this extreme contrast here, this rich man who literally does not have a care in the world. He's got a nice house. He's got comfy bed, you know. He's got lots of food. I imagine he was a bit of a glutton, you know. Probably looked a little bit like Santa Claus. He had his own personal chef. He had everything that he needed and more. He lived a life of luxury. And right outside his home at the gate was a poor man who had to be laid there. That's what the text tells us. Someone had to carry him and put him down there. And this man was just hoping that some of the trash from the rich man's house might end up in his mouth. Poor man was diseased. Open sores. He couldn't even fend off the dogs that lived on the streets who would come and lick his sores. I mean, this contrast is extreme. And the rich man is unnamed, but the poor man is named. His name is Lazarus. That's what the text tells us. Lazarus. And the fact that Jesus gives this poor man a name is significant, right? We know this in Scripture. Come on, let's just come back to this foundation. Names don't happen by accident in Scripture, right? They all have meanings. They all have significance. And this name, Lazarus, means this. God has been my help. That's what the name Lazarus means. Sometimes you say Eliezer. It's the same name. God has been my help. Lazarus. God has been my help, which means this. That as terrible as this man's existence was in abject poverty, as terrible as it had been that no one had cared for him, that he was reduced to such a life, he had maintained a faith in God. As terrible as his experience in life was, he had maintained a posture of faith in which he was looking unto God in spite of his circumstance. You know, you find this amongst poor, the poor. There's no atheists amongst poor people. 
You know, like, like if you ever go down to the downtown east side or you talk to people on the street, you know there's, you never have to get over the hurdle of atheism. Never. Because they believe in God, man. They can tell you about what God has done for them. No one denies the existence of God when they're living on the street. Poor people know God exists. So here's the contrast that Jesus paints for us. You got one man, he has everything except one thing. He has everything but God. And then you have a poor man. He has nothing, but he has God. He has God. And then the one thing that is certain for all men happened to them both. Death came knocking. They stuffed the rich man into a coffin and there was a big expensive funeral. They served little deli sandwiches and had fruit platters and dessert trays with Nanaimo bars and it was a really nice celebration. The poor man also died, except no one even noticed. He died alone. No coffin, no expensive funeral. And then when these men died, Jesus said, the contrast between them became even greater, except now this time, the experiences were the polar opposite. Both of them survived death. But their experience were the opposite. And what we find out was that the deciding factor that determined their experience was how they had lived on earth. The poor man, Lazarus, whose name means God is my help. Well, Jesus says angels carried him to Abraham. May not have had an elaborate funeral with all those delicious little sandwiches and Nanaimo bars and stuff like that, fruit platters. But he had angels carry him to where Abraham was. A lame man. A lame man who had depended on people to carry him to the rich man's gate. When he died, he was carried by angels to the side of Abraham. Abraham's bosom, the text tells us. It's amazing because the book of Hebrews tells us, you believe in angels? The book of Hebrews tells us that angels are ministering servants sent to serve the heirs of salvation. So in eternity, here's Lazarus. He's got servants all around him. Servants that come to him in his death to transport him uh, to Abraham's bosom. He's no beggar anymore. And I just think about that. I'm like, that'd be so awesome. Do you know how short your memory would be of earth if that was your experience? You'd be like, what? Oh, Oh, yeah, right. I was a beggar back then. I forgot that. I mean, his memory got short, those memories of life on earth just began to fade because the experience of glory and eternity was so awesome that his hardship just seemed as if it was like nothing compared to what he was experiencing. The rich man, his experience was a little different. And I don't know, there's no way to soften the blow here. You know, you know, again, I said Luke chapter 16 is just hard. You know, I think about what Jesus tells us in other places. Jesus said this, my words are spirit and they are truth. Jesus said this, whoever hears my voice, hears the voice of truth. Jesus said, I am the way, the life, and the truth, church. So if this man's experience was some other reality, if it was to play out differently 
We could trust Jesus to tell us the truth. So that means we can trust his description of this man's experience with regards to life after death. And Jesus said some things very clearly that this man was in pain, anguish, that he was tormented, that he was all alone, that there was no one serving him. And Jesus said he was in anguish in the flame. Jesus said that he had a thirst that could not be quenched. His tongue, you know what that's like when you're just so thirsty. I mean, I've never been to this point, but when your tongue is just swelled in your mouth from the heat and it's like, I need water, this man had nothing to quench his thirst. It's interesting that even beyond the grave, he could feel his thirst. The worst part of all was that he was consciously aware that Lazarus was being comforted. Comforted in eternity. The rich man could see the comfort while he is in torment and there was no escape. So he cries out to Father Abraham, Jesus said, and he requested just a small act of mercy. If Lazarus could just come and bring him just one drop of water and just give him a little bit of relief from his thirst. And so Abraham says this, sorry, (laughs) no can do. Because between you and us is a great chasm. And no one can go from here to you and no one can come from where you are to where we are. This great chasm is fixed. And so I think about this no water. You know, remember Jesus hung on the cross and just before he died, remember his request? I thirst. <laughs> he was on his way to hell for our sins. There was no way for the rich man to have his thirst quenched. And he's tormented by the memory of how well he had lived on earth, which is really interesting too. It's like his good memories have gone bad, you know. The poor man's forgotten his experience because eternity is just so awesome. But for the rich man, good memories gone bad. Recalling his former life as a rich man was no comfort. In fact, it made his reality worse. And now he believed in God, you know, because there's no believers in unbelievers in hell. Everyone eternally separated from God in hell believes in God. They believe that Jesus is the Son of God. The problem is, it's just not saving faith because it's come too late. Here's this man. He lived pursuing the things of the world. He got whatever he wanted, and Abraham said to him, Remember, you received in your lifetime all the good things, and Lazarus in like manner received bad. And now he's comforted. And you are in anguish. You know, amazingly, it's not like Abraham's like uh, calling out to someone else in heaven. Yo, Isaac, go get the list. They don't like, there's none of that. There's none of that. It's not like a bad list is pulled out and it's just read off. Well, here, rich man, here's all the things that you, you murderer, you this, you, you, you swindler, you thief, you, you're this, you're that. No, there's, there's no list of bad things pulled out. I think we could say the man was there not because of things he had done. He was there because of the one thing he had not done. 
he had not looked to God for help. He could not say, like Lazarus, God has been my help. See, his wealth had intoxicated him from recognizing his need for the Lord. He had nice clothes, a nice place to live. He ate really well. He didn't need God. He didn't need God because he seemed to be getting along just fine without God. He had no recognition of his need for God. And when he discovered his need, well, what we read here is that it was too late. Then he got concerned about his family. He got interested in missions, evangelism. He wanted to see others saved because he didn't want them to end up where he was. He had five brothers. So he says to Abraham, is there something we can do to warn my brothers? Lest they end up here where I am in this place of torment? You know what they say about your family, right? You can pick your friends, but you're stuck with your family. He's like, I don't want my family stuck here. You know, it's amazing because people develop this attitude about, you know, an eternity apart from God. They say, well, at least I'll be there with my friends and it's going to be like a party and it's going to be a great time. Well, it's not the picture we get in Scripture, is it? It's not how the Word of God presents to us an eternity apart from Him. So the rich man says, maybe we could send a missionary. Maybe we could send back Lazarus from the dead. And he could warn them. Because if someone would rise from the dead, I know my brothers would listen to that. I mean, that would be undisputable. If someone would rise from the dead and go to them and tell them about the reality of life on the other side of the grave, they would know everything they needed to know and they'd live for the Lord. If Lazarus could just say, hey guys, here I am, you know. Back from the dead, remember me? I used to hang out at your brother's gate there hoping to eat some garbage. And I've come back to tell you, you need a savior. You have to trust in him for your life and then you'll live. You know, you know, it's kind of funny. So the rich man never asked Lazarus, hey, what do you think about this idea? It's like, it's like are you kidding me, man? You think I want to go back with what I'm experiencing? No, thank you. Because he's finally comforted. And so the question is this, I mean, would those brothers believe? Those five brothers? If someone came back from the dead, would they listen? You know, it's amazing, about two weeks after Jesus told this story, he raised a man named Lazarus from the dead. Yeah, praise God. Did they listen to Lazarus? They did not. Did the scribes and the Pharisees say to Lazarus, Lazarus, come and tell us about your experience of four days in the grave and what was beyond the grave. No, they actually plotted to kill Lazarus because he was giving testimony to the person of Jesus. It's an incredible foreshadow of what Jesus himself did to be raised and to come back from the grave. And what did the scribes and Pharisees do with that? Did they believe on Jesus? No, they plotted to kill his followers. Abraham said to the rich man, they have Moses and the prophets, let them listen to them. He said said to them, he said to him, if they don't listen 
to Moses and the prophets, they won't even be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. And like I said, that's quite the foreshadow to the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, isn't it? Abraham says they have Moses and the prophets. They already have the word of God. Let them listen to that. You see, there is here in our Bibles enough information to save you from an existence of suffering on the other side of the grave. All the truth you need is right here in the Word of God. Amen? And this one book points you to one person who paid the penalty for your sins. Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Your sin's already been paid for. Your indulgence and your indifference has already been punished in the person of Jesus, praise his name. But the word of God teaches us you have to believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and surrender your life to his lordship and then he will give you eternal life. And the biggest hindrance that a person can face is this, their own wealth. (laughs) Because wealth can make you unaware of your need. When you're clothed and your belly is full, you're well fed, you forget your need for God. And the sad truth is this, as we read this, is that when someone doesn't want to believe, if they don't want to believe, if they don't want to believe, There's nothing that will convince them. Not Lazarus rising from the dead. Not even Jesus rising from the dead. See, what we don't need is more evidence. What we need is more willingness to believe in the Lord. There's this popular belief out there. I mean, someone said it to me just yesterday. I was told, oh, we're entering into this you know, time of miracles and people are going to see and they're going to believe. And look, I think that would be wonderful. I'm like, I'm like into that. You know, if that's what the Lord does, praise God. I I believe the Lord works through the miraculous, but if someone is not willing to believe, even someone rising from the dead is not going to convince them. And Jesus rose from the dead. I mean, let's talk about this for a moment. What more could one person possibly do? What more could you possibly need? Jesus is alive. He's conquered death and the grave. He has ascended into heaven. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. What more can he do, as the Word of God tells us? He's given us his Word. And here's Jesus talking about the experience of two men with death and life after death. And could we actually be so arrogant and prideful to say, well, that's not what happens when someone dies? That's arrogant. That's pride. Someone is demanding more proof, more miracles, more evidence. And then if they get it, Jesus says, you know, will they believe? Don't believe them. They're not going to believe even with more evidence. They don't want to believe the word of God now. There is nothing that will convince us. And so the word of God tells us, this is what is going to happen in the future, and this is how you can prepare for the future. You have to take God at his word. That's what Jesus is saying. 
It's a very serious thing to reject the word of God. If you don't think you can take God as a word, let, at his word, let me ask you, what can you take him at? If you can't take God at his word, what can you take him at? So man, I would implore you, take him at his word and trust his son. You know, there's only two types of people in this world. Those who say, like Lazarus, God is my help and I am in need for his mercy and his grace. And so Jesus, I come to the cross, I confess my sin and I surrender to your lordship and I thank you for your forgiveness and eternal life. And then there's another type of person and that's those who won't take him at his word. And we read here that in eternity, there is a gulf that exists between these two people in these two places, and it's fixed. It can't be crossed. You can't move from one place to another. And that, you guys, that church is the beauty of our lives right now because that is, I would say, the benefit of life right now is that the gulf can still be crossed. The chasm can still be crossed. A decision can be made. The bridge is in place to bring you to the Father, and it's through the person of Jesus. And making that decision, it'll affect your life for eternity. It's amazing, you know. You could be the worst sinner. You could be the worst of sinners. You could be guilty of many offenses of God. And with your last breath, like the thief on the cross, you could say to Jesus, Remember me in paradise. And Jesus will say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. So much better than depart from me, I never knew you. And what we find out is this, is that death comes for all men, rich and poor. And what Jesus is imploring those who hear him, that the time to cross the gulf, the great chasm, between God and man is now. It's now. Will Abraham look on you and say, you had your good time? Now this place is for those who need comfort. Or will you place your faith in Christ and say, God is my help. God is my help. Let me just end with these words this morning. Church, live this life for the next. Live this life for the next and trust Christ to help you.